Amen. I was reading, just reading in my devotions through the week, and it's one of the many advantages of regular time in the Word of God, is that things that you may have read many, many times, you can go back and see things that are fresh and new again. And I was just, it really struck home to me the significance of the ministry of the Word of God through a man or a woman of God. In the book of Exodus, you read that. This is not my message. This is just the uh, entree, if you like. Um, Moses was called up onto the mountain to commune with the Lord. The Bible says that when he took a little bit longer than the people liked, they begin to become concerned. They begin to uh, become a bit panicky. And they got Aaron, who would become the high priest, to, to make them a an idol out of gold, the golden calf. And they begin to worship that thing and, and dance about and carry on in a very ungodly manner. And so Moses is up on the mountain having this intimate conversation with God and being given direction for the people that he was leading. And in the midst of this, the Lord says to Moses, there's a problem down at the bottom of the hill. The people have gone wacko. They've gone crazy. They're doing all sorts of bad things. They're, they're falling into idolatry. And the Lord says to Moses get out of my way so I can wipe them out and then I'll start afresh with you we'll start with one man we'll build a new people and Moses says to the Lord please don't Lord and he says remember these are your people remember where you've brought them from remember the covenant that you made with Abraham and with the patriarchs and Moses if you like almost stands in the gap for the people of God against the wrath of God but then when he comes down the mountain and he sees that everything that the Lord said was happening was happening strangely enough God got it right in Moses's anger he smashes the tablets of stone that he's just been given and the man who just stood before the Lord for the people calls those that are on the Lord's side to come and stand with him to strap on their swords and to go through the people and slaughter those that were doing the things they shouldn't have been doing. It almost seems a contradiction that on one hand, the man of God would say, Lord, have mercy on your people, and then go down the mountain and follow through with what he did. Both of those were of God. He didn't get one right and one wrong. But that's how it is when we go, when somebody stands in a pulpit, and if I can be a little bit bold, particularly a pastor, he goes before the Lord for the people of God, but then sometimes what he has to deliver for their benefit is not always pleasant. And now everybody's nervous about what I'm going to preach. If you've got your Bibles, let's go to Second Samuel chapter 24. I just God's Word is just a bottomless treasure. I read that the other day and it just really struck me, the comparison. I wonder, you know, the Lord's looking at Moses thinking he loves these people. The people looking at Moses thinking he hates us and wants to kill us all. Same man doing the will of God. Second Samuel chapter 24 and we'll also be going to Luke chapter 14. Second Samuel chapter 24 and verse 18 says, And Gad, who was a prophet, came that day to David and said unto him, Go up, 
and rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite. And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And Araunah looked at him and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Araunah went out and bowed himself before the king on his face upon the ground. And Araunah said, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Araunah said unto David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seemeth good unto him. Behold, here be oxen for burnt sacrifice, and threshing instruments and other instruments of the oxen for wood. All these things did Araunah as the king give unto the king. He offered them to the king. And Araunah said to the king, The Lord thy God accept thee. And the king said unto Araunah, Nay, or no, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 26. says, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren, and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he hath sufficient to finish it? Lest happily or by chance after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, that all that behold him begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Amen. The overlapping theme, if you like, between these two passages is one of cost. David had sinned and brought suffering on the people of Israel, and this interaction with Arona was a part of the process of seeking forgiveness from God and stopping the plague that God had sent among the people because of David's sin. David was not comfortable with the idea that he could offer sacrifice that did not cost him anything. The man that was his servant, the man that was one of his people, offered both the land and the oxen to his king for free. But David would not hear of it. He, he, he wanted to, he did not feel comfortable with offering something to God that somebody else had effectively paid for. And in Luke, at the beginning of our passage in Luke, Jesus spoke of hating our families. Now, if you read that in isolation, that seems pretty intense. But the usual understanding of that passage is that it's one of comparison with our love for Him and our willingness to serve Him. The scriptures have plenty to say about loving our families and honoring our parents and all of those things so the lord does not want us to hate our families but it's a comparison between our willingness to love him and to serve him but we also ought to notice that there may be times when your commitment to god will put you at odds with your family that happens and some of you have that testimony and then jesus said that if you plan on building a tower or a structure of some sort you would normally sit down and work out if you have enough money or resources to finish the job 
Otherwise, if you start and you don't get the job done, people will laugh at you because of your incomplete project because you are not able to finish it. And with that platform this morning, I want to minister from this thought, not finished yet. Not finished yet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your presence here. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for the move of your Spirit among us. And God, I pray we've heard from your gifts, Lord, that you have made everything possible. Everything that we need is here. It is in your name. It is through your blood. There is nothing that you cannot do. And so, Lord, this morning, we ask you to speak to us to minister to our hearts, to change, to transform, Lord God, to renew and to restore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hypothetically speaking, what would you be willing to pay if one of your loved ones was terminally ill? If there was some kind of a price that would guarantee their recovery? Somebody said there's a, there's a method or a technique, but it's going to cost X amount of money. What would you be willing to pay? If there was a, a, a situation where you could donate something, whether it was blood, bone marrow, an organ or a part of an organ, you kind of need most of them in your own body. But if you were able to do that to save the life of somebody that you loved, how far would you be willing to go? If your own life, was suddenly diagnosed with a terrible fatal illness and the medical professionals told you that there was nothing that they could do but that they were aware of an experimental treatment on the other side of the world somewhere that was seeing some wonderful results but unfortunately in our own country the government health system wouldn't cover the cost of that treatment because it was still experimental and that for you to access that treatment that was the only thing that might save your life and it costs millions, what would you be willing to pay? What would you do if you were told you have a disease, you're going to die, there's a treatment, let's go for Europe, it's a long way away, there's lots of smart people there. There's a treatment over there that could save your life, but it's going to cost you $5 million. Now, if you had $5 million, the question's easy to answer. But I'm working on the assumption that most of you don't. If you, if you did not have that money, what extent would you be willing to go to and what would you be willing to pay? I imagine that you would sell your home, that you would sell everything that you have, that you might try to get interviews in the newspaper or on television, hoping to appeal to the compassion of others to help you to raise money. You might go for various online fundraising platforms that people seem to use nowadays. You you know, social media campaigns, this GoFundMe is one of the things you see online where somebody has something they want and so they give you the opportunity to help them out. Lots of varying causes. Some is like, seriously, you want me to give money for that? But you would do whatever you could. It's an awful lot of money. But what is it worth to save your life? What is your life worth and what would you be willing to pay? Scripture gives us examples of desperation a woman with the issue of blood having spent everything she had on doctors and was getting no better in her desperation to touch the hem of Jesus' garment Jairus and his little girl who was dying 
lepers, the blind, the lame, a widow with a dead son, willing whatever it takes to try to get a hold of a miracle. When you're in that situation where life hangs in the balance, money becomes irrelevant. Other priorities fade, and because you're facing losing the most valuable things that you have. But let's make this spiritual this morning, because that's why we're here. What if, in our sinful condition, before we were saved, God allowed us to stand on the very edge and look into the abyss of a godless eternity? If God allowed you to have a glimpse of hell, even for just a few moments, and see the torments that await the unrighteous in eternity. Hell is so repulsive and unattractive to men's thinking that there are theologians, people who profess to be God-fearing people, that look for ways to redefine it, to soften it, and to explain it away, such as its horror that they look in a modern context to try to find a way to soften the idea that it's metaphorical or it really just means that there's, there's heaven and then second prize. They look for ways to try to make hell more palatable. But Jesus said, he said, Fear not them which can kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. He said, But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Hell is not a popular subject, nor should it be. But it's biblical. In Luke 16, it tells us of a rich man in hell who was in such suffering and such torment that even a drop of water on his tongue would have been immense relief to him. I don't know about you, but when I've been really thirsty, a drop of water is not doing a whole lot. I need a bucket. I need a big bottle of cold water. But it, such was his torment that a single droplet of water on his tongue he would have considered a source of relief. And it is, as much as it is impossible for us to comprehend the wonder of heaven, it is equally as impossible for us to grasp the horror of hell. And if this morning in our sinful, unredeemed state we were able to stand at the threshold of eternity and to look into the lake of fire, what do you think you would be willing to pay? What do you think that you would be willing to give to somehow escape that? No price would be too great. No demands would be too excessive. We would do anything that we were asked to do. We would endure any hardship. We would sacrifice anything. We would, if it was material, if it was, if it was experience, if it was hardship and trouble in this life, if we knew that it would get us out of going to that eternity, is there anybody that wouldn't pay the price? If you could see hell and its horror, we would pay whatever we could. No price would be too great. No demand would be too excessive. I don't know about you, but I would do whatever it took for myself. I'd do whatever it took for my loved ones. I would do whatever it takes. But the brutal reality is that whatever you could give in a thousand lifetimes would never be enough. That's the reality. That's what the Word of God tells us. That you do not have the capacity 
nor the capability, nor the resources, nor the integrity, nor anything else that could even come close to getting you out of that destiny, of excusing you from that end of the road, if I can put it that way. That's why we need to be reminded of Calvary again and again and again and again. And we're probably going to have communion after prayer on Wednesday night. Encourage you to be here for that. But you see, the only one who could pay our debt, the only one who could afford our debt was Jesus. It was His grace and His mercy is the only thing, only thing, not the best option, but the only thing that could cause us to escape the judgment of hell. In willingly laying down His life, He provided an opportunity for us to escape that horror. This is a little heavy this morning, but eternity is a long time. He offers us the chance to come out of darkness and into light, to leave one life behind, to be born again, and to begin a new life. And when we are born again of water and spirit, there is another option in eternity that we have a glimpse of here. When we come into His presence, when we worship Him, when the Spirit of God moves in amongst us and we just feel His love and His joy and His peace, we get a little glimpse. We see through the crack, if you like, of the doorway into heaven of the other opportunity that we have by being born again of water and of Spirit. Amen. We get a glimpse of a place where there is no sorrow, There is no pain, there is no tears, no death, no suffering, and no sin. We get a foretaste, the earnest of our inheritance, the writer of Ephesians said, of a place where the light that we now have is what lights the city where we will go. Where the Bible says that there will be no need of the sun or the moon because the Lamb is the light thereof. That's the light that we walk in now, that we have a glimpse of that opportunity. That's why we need to remember what He did. That's why we need to look back and praise Him and worship Him again and again and again. Thank God for His grace and for His mercy and for His love for us that while we were yet sinners, He said, I can love you through that because I can see what you can be beyond that. You ought to lift your hands and worship Him for that this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. There's not one of us that was not in the express lane for hell before he found us the good people the bad people and everybody in between is headed for godless eternity without the power of the gospel of jesus christ and so we come out of darkness and into light we leave an old life we're born again of water and spirit you're not sure what that means it means you repent of your sins you're baptized in jesus name you're filled with the holy ghost we begin a new life 
the writer of the book of Romans said, shall we continue in sin? Because God's given us grace anyway. We couldn't do it. He's given us grace. Should we just continue to live the same way? And he said, God forbid. He said, how shall we that are dead to sin, this is Romans 6 if you're taking notes, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? You can't live in something you're dead to. You're either alive to it or you're dead to it. He then went on to say, no you're not or don't you know that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. So if we, we've come out of darkness, we've come into light, we've gone from an old life into a new life, and this new life that we have is something that we are to walk in. That's not speaking particularly about putting one foot in front of another, but it's talking about the way we live. We walk in this new life. We walk in light instead of darkness. Amen. We've started a new life. The old life is dead. Being born again gives us a new life. Buried in baptism, walking in resurrection power, which I can quite easily show you if you want to afterwards. That's the power of the Holy Ghost. So one life finishes and another life starts. And we... If you look, if you go home, if you've got any kind of software or if you're old school and you've still got a strong concordance that needs three people to carry it, if you look up the word walk in the New Testament, you'll see that we are instructed to walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We are instructed to walk honestly or righteously. That's in Romans 13. We are to walk by faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are to walk in good works or righteous living. Ephesians chapter 2. We are to walk worthy of our calling. Or in other words, in a fashion that reflects what God has done for us, that honors Him, that glorifies Him, that worships Him. That's Ephesians 4 and 1. We are to walk in love. Ephesians 5 and 2. We are to walk circumspectly, or we might say carefully, taking care, being diligent. It's also Ephesians 5. Colossians says we are to walk in wisdom. 1 John says we are to walk in the light. 2 John says we are to walk after His commandments. And 3 John says we are to walk in truth. So, we were not in a position, even though we stood on the very edge of hell, as it were. That was our, we didn't realize it, but when we were lost, that was our spiritual location. One train stopped from hell. When we were standing there, we could not save ourselves. We could not give enough, earn enough, devote enough to get away from that. But by His grace and His mercy and His blood and His love and the power of His name, we have a new life. But that new life requires that we live in a particular way that is different from before. Amen. Because we're called out of darkness and into light. And the Bible says that light has no fellowship with darkness. Or we would say they just don't go together. They don't play well. Light and darkness do not get along well. So if we're going to walk in light, you can't be in darkness at the same time. The two are not compatible. When you bring light, darkness is dispelled. You walk into a dark room, you flick the switch, the light comes on, the darkness is no longer there. 
When you walk away from light, you walk towards darkness. Darkness is not something you can turn on. Darkness is the absence of light. When you walk away from light, you walk towards darkness. It is part of our walk with God to take care that we continue to walk in light and not drift into darkness. I read a quote just the other day that said, Just like our eyes, our hearts have a way of adjusting to the dark. We need to be careful that we walk in the light. You cannot save yourself from sin. We have to understand that. Nobody can save themselves from sin. Only obedience by faith to the gospel can save your soul. Some people think that's saving yourself. I can't take my sins away. I can't fill myself with the Spirit of God. I can obey the gospel by faith and let Him do the work. See, if, if you go back to the Old Testament, don't turn there, but if you, you go back to the story of Saul when he disobeyed the Lord and the prophet Samuel came to him and there was that interaction where Saul tried to justify his actions. He tried to say, I did this for the right reason, which was doubtful at best. But he tried to say, I did this for the Lord. I did this to worship God. I did this to please the Lord. Samuel said words that have become famous ever since then where he said to obey is better than to sacrifice. Now, let's think about that a little in a New Testament context. Why is it better to obey than to sacrifice? Because when you obey the commandments of God, you allow God to do what only He can do. But when you sacrifice, we are doing what we do towards Him. Sacrifice is part of worship once we are saved. Obedience is the process whereby we become saved. And if you continue to just try to do for God, it will not save your soul. But if you obey the gospel of God... You will be saved by the Lord, and then you are able to say, I offer you the sacrifice of praise. That's why obedience is better than sacrifice. Amen. Sacrifice does have a place in our approach to God, but it is what we do, it's not what He does. And salvation is what He does, not what we do. Amen. Bless the Lord. So when we are born again, we are called to live differently. We are called to live righteously. I'll give these scriptures to anybody who wants them afterwards. Second Corinthians six seventeen through to seven and one says, "Wherefore come out from among them, be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you." There's, there's a separation happening there. There's I don't do that anymore. And he said, "And I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters," saith the Lord Almighty. And there's a full stop. And in your Bible, that's the end of the chapter. The Lord said, if you'll separate yourself from things that are unclean, I'll be your heavenly father. You'll be my children. We'll have that relationship where I will look after you. I'll provide for you. I'll protect you. I'll love you. I'll take care of your needs. But it's ongoing. Because if you ignore the chapter break, you see the very next verse of 7 and 1 says, having therefore these promises. Because God said, if you will separate yourself and be my children, he said, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting or completing holiness in the fear of God. 
What that means, if you break it down, is that even though I've, I've turned from a sinful lifestyle, I've been born again of water and spirit, become his child, he's my father. Romans says we're adopted by the Spirit of God. I enter into that and all the promises that come with that in an ongoing sense, because I want to complete what he wants in my life, I'm continuing as he leads me, as his word speaks to me, to cleanse myself. From, it says filthiness that's not a very nice word but in our flesh and in our human spirit that's what we've got we've got filthiness and we need to continue to say lord change me lord take that out lord i lay that down he's my heavenly father he wants me to be more blessed by him and so i continue to perfect holiness or really to allow him to perfect holiness in me we'll get to that in a little bit Amen. When we are born again, we're called to love differently. Possibly one of the hardest challenges for human beings. The Lord said in Matthew 5, if you love them that love you, what reward do you get for that? He said, even the publicans do that. He said, the sinners, somebody loves them, it's easy to love them back. Now, Brother Chichi comes over tomorrow and says, Pastor, I just love you so much, I want to give you $1,000. He's my friend. Right then and there, I love Chichi. If he does it every day, we're going to be really good friends. And I'm going to be wondering where he got the money from. But the scripture says, if we love those that love us, what's the big deal? That's human. But then the Lord went on and said, love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. That's when it got quiet in the crowd. Then in John 13, he said, people will know that you're my disciples if you have loved one for another. Let's get real for a moment this morning, get down to where we live sometimes shouldn't be like this but sometimes it's easier to love your enemy than your brother you don't have to say amen but i'm right sometimes it's easier to love your enemy than your brother because most of the time you don't live and go to church with your enemy and if you do that's okay hopefully they'll become your brother but sometimes it's harder to love our brethren. That's why we need the Holy Ghost, and we'll get to some of that in a minute. When we're born again, we're called to be part of a body. Ephesians says, speaking the truth in love, grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, fitly joined together, compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of itself, unto the edifying of itself or the building up, the strengthening, the, the stabilizing of itself in love. It is an ongoing, everybody say ongoing. Ongoing process of growth, maturity, and the processes of God. Amen. Sold out Christianity, the kind where you give everything you've got to the Lord. I don't mean you sell your house, your car, but when, when, you, when he is the king of your life, when he is how you live and why you live, sold out Christianity is awkward and uncomfortable for the world. They're not sure how to deal with that. And we'll go a step further and I'll say it's even awkward and uncomfortable for contemporary relevant churches. I'm not throwing stones at anybody, but that's just how it is. Sometimes, if you're honest, we all feel a pressure to soften a particular stance 
to make some adjustments so that our message is more palatable or pleasant tasting to others. Nobody likes to be awkward or different. Nobody likes to be the weird person, the strange person, the one that others think, yeah, they're a little bit. But if we're going to be sold out for him, we're all a bit awkward. We're all a bit strange. Strangers and sojourners in the land is what the Bible calls us. The old hymn says, this world is not our home. It's just passing through. Nobody likes to be awkward or different. And here's the warning. Our flesh fights against that awkwardness. Our flesh does not like being different, living different, acting different, loving different, being separated, changing the way God wants. Our flesh fights against that. But if, you're, if you let your flesh win that war, you may seem that you have achieved some kind of liberty or peace. But the price of that victory is greater than you realize. And the devil deceives us to think, it's okay, I don't need those things anymore. I feel so much lighter now that I've stopped fighting. You feel lighter because you've given in to your flesh. About 300 BC, there was a Greek king whose name was Pyrrhus. I believe is how you pronounce his name. He fought a battle with the Romans. And he won the battle, but in doing so, he suffered such appalling losses that it was more than offset his gains. In other words, the losses were greater than the gains, even though he won the battle. And thus, a victory that costs too much today is often referred to as a Pyrrhic victory he's apparently quoted as saying in that campaign if we are victorious in one more battle with the romans we shall be utterly ruined in other words the price that they were going to pay for that victory was not worth it was not worth it be like i don't know maybe don't advise this by any means but if you went down to the casino and 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 spent a thousand dollars and won ten dollars that's the kind of loss that you will you bring upon yourself if you yield to the flesh the battle will seem like you've won but you've paid a price that is so much higher than you will realize be very careful what kind of victory you're seeking for be very careful i understand we get weary we're all human and thank god he knows that there are times that our strength fails but we're not finished yet this thing is not finished yet we're not finished we have questions sometimes that we wonder if it's worth it do these convictions really matter the separation from sin righteous living really make a difference do I really have to go to church with those people? I'm not sure if I can love them anymore. Let's be honest, some of you felt like that. A little bit of honesty here. My family are giving me a hard time. Surely God will understand if I back off my commitment to Him to satisfy my family. We're not finished yet. This thing is not over yet. The building has not been completed. Amen. Let's go back to the original question. When you stood, as it were, hypothetically, on the edge of hell, staring into that endless torment, what was it that you were willing to pay? 
how much would you have given? You know, if, if the Lord had said to you then, oh, you'll need to live differently, we would have said, not a problem. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll, I'll let the world make fun of me. I'll, I'll, I'll be the weirdest person in town. If it'll get me out of hell, I'll do that. The Lord said, well, for maybe 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you're going to have to go to church with those people. Lord, if it gets me out of hell, I'll go to church with Moses. I love Brother Miles. I'll do my best to be a good brother to sister. I'll do that, Lord. If that'll get me out of hell. I'm willing. I'll worship you, Lord, when I'm going through a hard time. I'll be faithful when I'm struggling. I'll give when I haven't got. If it gets me out of hell, Lord. You can fill in the blank, but you would have said, Lord, whatever it is. The Lord had brought up an image of the person you find the hardest to do. He said, Lord, if it'll save my soul, I love that person. Even my mother-in-law, Lord, I love my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law's lovely, so I'm not picking up my mother-in-law. But though, we would be willing to do whatever we can. Go through whatever we would have to go through. I read another quote the other day. I think it was Brother Ryan Trimble, Brother Trimble's son. He said, when you go through an irrational trial... That's time to give a rational praise. And I thought that's worth remembering. When it doesn't make sense, your worship shouldn't make sense either. But it needs to be given anyhow. But Lord, I'll go through whatever you want me to, Lord. But you see, he didn't... That salvation, you couldn't do enough of that for salvation. You couldn't go to the worst church on the planet and endure it for a hundred years to save your soul. He had to save your soul. But he said, when I give you this new life, there's a way you need to live. And you know what the amazing thing is? People walk away from the life and sacrifice the salvation. Something they could never afford, they give up because they can't put up with, let's be honest, the little stuff. Not making, not being flippant or being lighthearted. I know we go through struggles. I go through struggles. Trust me. I could write a book. Not that my struggles are any worse than anybody else's, but we all have them. So this is not... We have hurts. We have heartaches. Those things are real. They're not make-believe. They're genuine. They're painful. Sometimes we feel like our heart is overwhelmed. But when we're at a point where that thing is causing us to be willing to compromise, we're carnal. It's flesh. It's not spirit. It's flesh. Because it is flesh that gets hurt. It is flesh that gets offended. It is humanity that will give up in the hard time. Again, I'm not making light of your struggle. But it is our flesh. It is our stinking carnal nature that will sell the farm for a couple of beans. That's the deceit of the enemy. We are not finished yet. But here's the good news amongst all of that serious stuff. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, and he said this. He said, being confident of this very thing, that he, not I, but he that has begun a good work in you, will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ 
Because unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. You see, just as you couldn't save yourself, you can't live godly by yourself. I can't live righteously by myself. I can't love. I can't be separated. I can't honor God and continue to grow and cast out filthiness of flesh and spirit in my own ability. It's not possible. I have to make the choice. But the power comes from Him. And He said, if I begin it, I'll finish it. But my message this morning is that it's not finished yet. And if you will hang on, if you will stick at it, He can bring you through. And if you'll repent of your stinking carnality, He can refresh you in the Holy Ghost and He can give you the power that you need to overcome because He's not finished yet. The devil wants you to believe that you don't have to do this and you don't have to do that and that you've had enough and you don't like this and you're fed up with that and that all may be true. But greater is He. We heard through the gifts of the Spirit that everything that we need, everything is here. And so if you're believing anything else other than that, you're listening to a lie. If I could have a musician, please, Sister Stinker. Early in the last century, I can't remember exactly what year, because this thought only came to me while I was driving to church this morning, and it's not safe to Google while you drive. I think it was around 1901, in a place called Topeka, Kansas, in the USA. It's historically recognized as what some people call the birth of modern Pentecost. Now, I'm not sure I agree with that, because Pentecost never needed to be born. It was born 2,000 years ago, and it's continued ever since. But historically at this place in Topeka, Kansas, there's a building. Now, this building, if you look it up, you'll find that it was some of its design and its feature and its structure was fashioned after English castles. The man that built this place had these grandiose ideas and spent at the time what was an absurd amount of money. His name was Stone, Mr. Stone. He built this place, but because of a change, I think it was, in the economy... He was either unable to complete the building or unable to maintain the upkeep of that building. And that building became known as Stone's Folly or Stone's Foolishness. It was a monument to him not finishing the job. And We read about how the Lord said, which one of you builds a tower doesn't sit down first and work out if he can do the job. Stone was unable, because of a change in his circumstances, to finish the job. It was in that building, in a testimony, in a monument to man's weaknesses, that a man named Charles Parham and a handful of Bible school students began to desire to know what was the genuine biblical evidence of receiving the Holy Ghost. And they went away, they had a break from each other, and they said, independent from each other, let's look at the Scripture and see what happens when people receive the Spirit. And they came back, and they all came back, strangely enough, with the same conclusion. That according to the Word of God, when somebody was filled with the Holy Ghost, they spoke with other tongues. And they began to pray. And I don't remember her name, but there was one particular lady that was the first one, as she was prayed for, 
was filled with the Holy Ghost, speaking in other tongues. And that began what became known as the 20th century Pentecostal movement. It spread from Topeka, it went down to Texas and across to California. Some of you might be familiar with the Zuzu Street. But it was born in a place that was a testimony to what man could not do. It was there that God said, I'll pour out my power where you are weak and incomplete. Amen. It's not finished yet. Stand with me if you would this morning. You feeling a little bit like your life is folly? Or your walk with God is struggling? The word of the Lord to you this morning is it's not finished yet. And that if you will give it to Him, all those convictions you fight, all those people that you struggle with, if you will repent, and really, to be honest, that's what it takes. It takes repentance. If we'll repent of all of that, He said to us that everything that we need is here. And that he that began a good work in you plans on performing it until the day of Jesus Christ. This altar is open. If you want to come and say, Lord, let that same spirit that fell at stones fall, fall on me. The